Hello, welcome back to Learn It From a Layman. Carl Christensen here, back with Cameron Christensen, Tim, I can't do physics, Cox, and for the first time on our podcast, uh, we have a new, um, uh, what, what, what can I call you, Peter, A uh, an expert, yes. I don't know if you want to <laughs> claim expert, and generally on this podcast, nobody claims expert, but Peter is certainly more on the Matt end of the spectrum than the Carl end of the spectrum, as far as our subject goes today. Um, Peter here is uh, a graduate uh, in physics um, and currently going to dental school, which I think is a natural outgrowth, right, Peter? Oh, yeah, it made the most sense at the time. <laughs> um, yeah, so anything else, anything else you want to tell us about yourself, Peter? Um, not much. I taught high school physics for two years, and... It's a really interesting subject, but I'm much more specialized in classical physics and mechanics, and I can do thermodynamics, electrodynamics, but quantum gets really messy really quick. So (laughs) unless you have a PhD or master's, it gets, we'll see what I can do. Okay, good. Well, good, because today, obviously, we get uh, we get people people like Peter on to talk about things that they are right at the edge of their knowledge, because at the learn it from a layman level, we like to keep things right at the edge of our knowledge, which is really easy for me. So um, so today we're going to be talking about the basics of quantum mechanics. Um, Matt will be jumping on in just a few minutes here, and he'll help Peter kind of walk us through some of the uh, difficult aspects, which I believe in quantum physics are all of the aspects. Um, but let's start with just some basic definitions here, which is some the one part of quantum physics I can actually kind of help in, though Peter probably needs to correct me on a lot of this. Um, so when I was getting ready for this podcast, I did a little bit of uh, research, and by that I mean Googling. Uh, and so quantum physics uh, versus quantum mechanics was something I hit up against really quickly. Uh, I got a definition here, Peter, but do, do, is that something that they teach or that you taught a difference between mechanics versus physics? Um, physics is just a more broad definition. Mechanics is specifically like how things move and interact. Okay. Well, think good. Your definitions are probably great. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. What I read is is the term, yeah, essentially what you just said. uh, Mechanics is more like um, mathematical laws, formalized theory, um, whereas anything that's called, uh, you know, or pre-mathematical um, laws is physics, so theories, stuff like that. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the, uh, the differentiation between quantum not, physics. Not and, uh, theories. Quantum. Not theories? Hypotheses. Hypotheses. Uh, hypotheses. Well, um, okay, so also the word quantum. So the problem, one of the layman problems, and once again, Peter, I, I, uh, I can speak directly to the layman in most subjects, because I am one. Um, but in particular, in quantum, as soon as you put the, say the word quantum, lots of eyes glaze over because um, it's uh, it's beyond the realm of any, of anything anyone interacts with on a normal day-to-day level. So um, let's define the word quantum. It's, uh, so when that comes from Latin, which means how much, right? And and and. Uh, uh, but what what uh, what are some some very basic level um, things? I don't know if you taught it at high school level. Did you ever touch on quantum physics in high school? We would touch on it, just the basics like Heisenberg uncertainty principle, um, wave particle duality, things like that. But basically, quantum physics is once you get down to small enough particles, you're dealing with different things. So all of classical physics kind of goes out the window. There's only a couple of things that hold like conservation momentum, conservation of energy. Um, But once you get down to the atomic and subatomic scale of things, like really, really small particles, then your physics has to all change and things just don't work anymore. So they have to basically change the whole field to have just quantum physics as its own field. Yeah, that's uh, I, I've heard that Einstein described it as spooky action at a distance. So if uh, Einstein calls it spooky, <laughs> it makes yeah uh, clearly it's yeah it's its own little uh well little it's by definition it is little right that's what you're saying yeah. like get out to small enough things uh but it's got its own like you said its own field um and at, we when we talked about um physics here a couple of weeks ago and Matt just joined us so he can also help us here um we talked Matt mentioned that like what you essentially what you just explained Peter is that as you get 
into these tiny particles. You know, um, the classical mechanics, classical physics breaks down. Um, and so uh, we don't currently have a good way to map from quantum physics back to, you know, to essentially laws that, that bridge that gap there, right? That's true. They had to redo a lot of the equations and make a whole new field just for it. Okay. Well, that's disturbing. Um, as you said, um, quantum also refers to discrete. Um, you quoted Latin as how much, but like right. discrete steps. So part of the problem was that there are particles and there are certain like levels of energy that were being emitted that couldn't be explained why it was discrete steps of energy from certain atoms as like electrons fell down from levels within there. I'm probably getting too um, too specific no. here. But no, 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 that's but, good. Um, if I could quantum, real quick, if I could just yes. bridge in for, oh, Peter, sorry to interrupt. I just want to bridge in and maybe explain discrete for our um, listeners. So um, discrete means that it exists in like levels and there something can't exist in between those levels. So um, to give an, uh, an example of what's not discrete, if you look closely at a rainbow, the colors are not discrete but continuous. So the reds gradually blend into the oranges and the oranges gradually blend into the yellows and, and so forth, all the way blending into purple. And, um, and that's not discrete, that's continuous. Um, however, let's say I had a rainbow where each each band of color was like separated from the other and there were there was a band of red and then there was a space and there was a band of orange and then a space and a band of yellow that would be not that would be discrete which is what you're talking about with with quantum things am, am i right and does that explanation seem to yeah a good example of quantized things would be stairs you can't be halfway between a stair you're either uh -huh. on one stair or the other so um within the realm of quantum physics that people understand some people might think of the Bohr model of the atoms where you have like um, electrons that orbit a nucleus which isn't entirely accurate but um, when the electrons quote unquote move from one orbital down to another or come closer to the nucleus emit a certain frequency of rate electromagnetic radiation which is discrete and they are always in or discrete as in a certain level. It's never like you might have a one or two, but you'll never have one and a half, for example. Okay. I, I have a question and something I was unclear as I was looking uh, up um, you know, quantum physics. I can't say for the first time, but you know, for relatively uh, little experience with it as I was doing some research. Um, so quantum, like you said, has to do with discrete amounts but it is also statistical in nature like there's a lot of statistics that that uh, that's once again coming from a layman so if i what i'm saying is incorrect you can correct me but it was saying you know things are assigned probability also in quantum mecha uh, quantum mechanics quantum physics uh what is i don't know if this is an even good question but how how do you how does the this discrete nature of quantum mechanics also work statistically yeah, that's a really good question. Um, the pro Well, this is something we're actually, from what we've talked about, we we're going to talk about later in the podcast, but simply that particles are never, it's hard to tell exactly where they are. And if you know exactly where they are, you lose other information. But maybe that's something that we want to talk about when we get to the other subjects we've talked about. Discussion. Sure. Well, yeah, sure. I'm sure they'll all work together. And like I said, uh, you're the uh, you're the expert. Um, though Matt can also claim some some level of expertise in this as well. And Tim knows more than I give him credit for. And Cameron uh, also. Well, everyone is bet more more expert at this than me. Uh, but let's before we. Oh, get that's partially a function of where the bar is set. <laughs> I like setting an incredibly low bar. And it moved um, up at discrete values. <laughs> very low, small, discrete values. Okay, let's. Before we get any further, though, I wanted to talk a little bit. I won't really talk about the history too much. I think it's more interesting to talk about the actual physics and the quantum laws and things like that. But um, I do want to give Einstein his due. I, I said that 
Einstein, a, a, a quote that a lot of people know in quantum mechanics is, is uh, Einstein described it as um, spooky action at a distance. However, uh, he did. It's not like that. <laughs> It's not like he didn't also contribute to quantum mechanics, though. It wasn't his his forte. It's not what he is known for. But um, Planck um, and Einstein both uh, did. So Planck predated Einstein. Einstein used some of uh, Planck's constant, I believe. Or am I getting this backwards? Anyway, they, uh, there's a, a formula that, that they uh, came up with. It's uh, E equals HV, um, which has to do with energy and um uh, okay, actually, let, let's get a definition. Matt or Peter, could you give me what that uh, that formula means exactly? I mean, I can take this one. It's not the okay. most exciting formula in physics, but basically, E is energy, H is Planck's constant, and V stands for frequency, which I'm sure that everyone would have guessed that V stood for frequency, right? But <laughs> um, basically, it's just saying that certain wavelengths or frequencies of light have certain um, energies. Okay. All right. So it's the yeah, energy I, associated I, with a photon of the light specifically, though. Okay, got it. And that's and that's and that came. Einstein helped come up with that law. Is, is my understanding in my, the research that I did. Anyway, so just wanted to give Einstein his due and not make him sound like a. Uh, uh, a layman when it comes to quantum physics, he was obviously uh, as versed as in quantum physics as anyone probably ever has been. But uh, anyway, um, let's move on a little bit here to the uh, the Higgs boson. Is that how you say that? Yep. What is the Higgs boson? Um, the Higgs boson is something that was very exciting to people because it confirmed the standard model of particle physics which is inherently complicated. Um, it breaks up particles into quarks and leptons, and um, the Higgs boson was something that um, Peter Higgs hypothesized would exist, and it, they later did find that it existed. The reason they built CERN mainly was actually to find the Higgs boson, but it confirms have, the standard have model. What, have we explained what CERN is? No, we have not. There may have been. the big black hole generator out in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. it's okay, not really, a but it's collider. a yeah, it's a particle yeah, accelerator. That in Spider-Man Two. That's correct. No, that was uh, into the Spider-Verse thing. Oh, oh, there we go. That's right. Yes, also the uh, sequel to the Da Vinci Code, Angels and Demons, which is another great documentary and uh, <laughs> a good primer for an introduction to particle physics. I find any movie Dude, with a rock don't in it. The Flash, also. man. Oh. Yeah. oh, there you go. Let's ask Peter how the Higgs boson relates to uh, Barry. What's his name's ability to travel back in time by running fast? <laughs> That's Barry Allen. Barry. A question for Matt. <laughs> Sorry, I think we've I, I accidentally derailed us. Anyway, CERN, big particle yes, collider. Okay. Yes, in Peter was giving us a yes, a, a good explanation. Found, here. found some bosons. Go ahead, Peter. Back to you. Basically, CERN, as Matt described, is a particle accelerator. They take, they have these really long tubes that they levitate tiny particles in, and then they speed them up to the speed of light, basically, and ram them into each other. And when they do, they basically fracture these little particles into even smaller subatomic particles, which are things um, that they can study. And the Higgs boson was one of the tiny subatomic particles that they hadn't um, been able to prove existed. But if it did exist, it was something that would fit within what's called the standard model, which is, as we discussed, divided into quarks and leptons. Um, and I don't know if we want to get into what those are, but they're basically what makes up even smaller particles, like a proton, for example, is made up of quarks. So someone might say that you have a proton, which is one of the smallest particles there is, but you can break a proton up into even smaller particles. And those are called quarks. And they're, for example, an up, up, and a down quark to make one proton. Interesting. So I've heard it termed before the God particle, the Higgs boson. Um, is that just because of the that connection there, that that proving the the that law that you said that it? That's it just confirmed? because you watched Angels and Demons, didn't you? 
yes, it, well, it may have had something to do with um, a movie that I don't know. Anyway, I don't know where it came from. Um, but what uh, it is described as that a lot. But I think that's something that scientists kind of. I think that there was a lot of hype when the Higgs boson was discovered, and scientists were excited about it because it confirmed the standard model. But I think that the hype kind of spawned itself to some degree, and I don't think that the God particle is something really used by scientists. Correct me if I'm <laughs> it doesn't sound that, particularly but... <laughs> scientific. <laughs> okay, well, that does make sense. Anytime you give something, if you can have the nickname the God particle for anything, I'm, I'm guessing that it does create some hype. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay, so that's uh, now you're talking about the standard model. Of, that's maybe you already defined it, and I, it went over my head. What what exactly is the standard model? Basically, it just divides matter into subatomic particles. So everything that you think of as atomic particles, like protons, neutrons, electrons, um, those are all made up of um, quarks and leptons. So we discussed it a little bit, but the electron is actually a lepton. Leptons are all um, indivisible. You can't get any smaller than that, where quarks are also indivisible, but they make up things like protons and neutrons. So each uh -huh. quark has a certain charge to it. The up, charm, and top quarks have a two-thirds charge, and down, strange, and bottom have a negative one-third charge. And you can get to either a neutral charge, like a neutron, or a positive charge, like a proton, by adding um, different combinations of each of those. But no, no, have really interesting part of it, yeah, it, it sounds like you're just saying random words at some point, but yeah. I'm pretty the, sure the names of yeah, The names of the quarks are, there's the six of them, what are they again? There's up, charm, top, down, strange, and bottom. Yeah. I would have loved to have been on the committee that figured out that, that was those were the six words they wanted to use to define the building blocks of all matter. But they all wrote a word on they were all word wrote a word on a piece of paper, put it in a hat, and pulled out the six. So. I've heard that those were just nicknames that the lab um, people used to describe the different types of quarks, and they just stuck, and no one ever came up with different names for them. But it is weird. Well, I'm a <laughs> I'm assuming, and I could be completely wrong, but like the bottom particle probably always was like on the bottom of the tube. Maybe. They can't actually separate these. It would take infinite energy to split a proton. And so as much as people might like to split a proton into the very smallest particles we can get, it would take infinite amounts of energy to ever do it. So we'll never be able to isolate an up quark or a strange quark. Are are up and down and top and bottom quarks? Do, do they have some opposite um, quality to them? Up and top are both positive two thirds charge, and down and bottom are both negative one third charge. But other than that, there probably is some quality to them that makes them paired. That I don't know. But. Okay. Wow. This got really deep. Um, I guess yeah, when we're talking, uh, what, what? Well, no, no you mean it got really bottom. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what was that, Matt? Uh, nothing. Cameron nailed it there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> okay, well, good. I'm, this is really good so far. So uh, I really appreciate Peter helping us. Um, we're going to dive into quantum fields, quantum field theories that I looked up um, in just a second. Before we do that, I'd like to give an update on our listener base sometime during the podcast. And in this case, I'd like to do a, a call out. So we've got listeners across all 50 states except for three. And I'm very disappointed in South Dakota, Arkansas, and West Virginia. And I really need you know, people to reach out and find people in those states because they're letting us down. So um, I, Canada is doing well. I, I'm not going to call out the Northern Territories, Yukon Territory, and none of it or Nunavut, or however you say that one, because those are essentially not populated. But every other North American... Oh, what was it? Burn. Oh, I said burn. Burn? So you're going to get all sorts of hit so now. <laughs> yeah, it's lots of those uh, 
those Northern Territory people are, yeah, I'm sure already writing their angry letters. Um, anyway, but we're doing, um, appreciate all of our listeners, um, UK, uh, lots of uh, new listeners there as well. So anyway, let's, uh, let's dive back in here. Um, we've got uh, quantum field theories. So I found three quantum f- field theories that were enumerated for um, f- that I, uh, I don't know if these are the only three. I don't know if these are specific to um, any particular aspect of quantum physics, but it said electromagnetism, uh, strong nuclear force, and weak nuclear force. Um, can anyone tell me, uh, Peter or Matt, I guess most, most specifically, what uh, those are and whether or not those are interrelated or how what these quantum field theories are? Go for it, Peter. I've only tricked Carl into thinking that I'm smart and I know stuff. <laughs> I'm counting on you to do the heavy lifting here. Um, I can definitely jump in there. Um, To my understanding, quantum field theories are very complex, but there are four um, fundamental forces within quantum physics and within all of physics, actually. But those are composed of electromagnetism forces, which are electricity and magnetic fields and forces. Um, Those ones interact. They're not... um, one in the same, like you have magnetic and electric forces, but um, they can also interact as you guys, I believe, have discussed about electromagnetism in the past or the electromagnetic spectrum, perhaps. Correct. Yes, that was uh, yeah. a podcast that Matt walked us through. But you can have electricity and magnetism that can feed off of each other. Um, I won't get into the details of that, but they're carried by a force. So each of these forces is carried by what's called a force-carrying particle. So electromagnetism is carried by a photon and has an infinite range. So it can be infinitely far away. You can be infinitely far away from a charged particle, and you'll always be able to detect some force from it. Um, in terms of strength, the strongest force is called, ironically, the strong force. And that's what binds um, quarks together that we were talking about with the weird names. Um, that one also has a force carrier. I wonder if the strong, wonder if the strong force was named by the same people who named all the different quarks. I don't know. The quarks seemed a little strange in their naming, but the yeah. strong force seems pretty direct. <laughs> <laughs> um, the strong force is carried by what are called gluons, though. Um, don't ask me what those are or how they discovered them, because I don't know. But um, it's the shortest range force as well, which means that um, it basically can only be felt binding those quarks and, yeah, basically the quarks together within an atom or within a proton and neutron. Um, and then you have the weak force, which is um, a really short range force, but it holds like it governs particle decay um, and it's carried by bosons which you may recognize the Higgs boson is one of them but other bosons that you have in the standard model are um, W um, positive and negative W and Z and the uh, photon and gluon are all bosons and then the last fundamental force you have is gravity which is carried by something called the graviton, which also created a bit of a wave in the news and physics recently. But um, they hadn't yet observed it till I think it was two years ago that they observed the first graviton. So wait, I'm wrong the graviton that. is a particle of gravity? Yeah, it's a force-carrying particle. It, I'm pretty sure it's an amusement park ride as well. <laughs> It's also a, a weapon in various sci-fi shooter games, the gravity. <laughs> um, hey, Peter, while, while yeah. we're talking about these things, um, you, you know, you have the force-carrying particles, um, like photons, which are, mm-hmm. they carry, elect, you know, electromagnetic forces. That That is what we detect when we deal with electromagnetic radiation. And yet we also talk about how these things are waves, you have electromagnetic waves, you have gravity waves. I think that is the thing that came up uh, back in, I think it was 2015 or 16. They confirmed that indeed gravity does have waves. 
-hmm. So with that, do you want to give us the layman take on wave-particle duality? Yeah, so you get, so this was, I believe, originally postulated by de Broglie, a physicist named de Broglie, which is an interesting name. But and it's spelled de Broglie. Yep. Um, basically, though, it just means that everything is both a particle and a wave. So no matter the size, you are like every person, every planet, every solar system has some wave characteristics and some particle characteristics. So as you get down to much smaller particles, you are much more likely to be um, to exhibit higher wave characteristics. Um, another physicist that talked about this was Heisenberg with Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. But in his, he described the ways in which we can tell how much particle and how much wave um, characteristics a certain thing might have. So the more, the faster something moves, the more, um, the more it acts like a wave, and the smaller something is, the more it acts like a wave. Okay, so... So just if you say, surely you can't mean everything has waves. I only have waves when very particular dance music comes on. Are you telling me <laughs> that all matter and every object has waves? Yes, Matt. All matter is waves. That's amazing and <laughs> utterly incomprehensible. Um, but... But yeah, it's it's not just uh, the force carrying particles that exhibit a wave particle duality. You know, duality meaning they have they are both. Um, it, it's one of the few things that I actually remember from college physics was talking about matter waves and how all matter has a wave characteristic with an amplitude and a frequency and everything else. It's negligible when you start to deal with any matter of you know, tangible size, but it's still there. I've got an, an illustration of that uh, that I've looked up here. If a baseball speed is known to within a precision of 0.1 miles per hour, the maximum precision to which it is possible to know the ball's position is 0. 0.00000. There's a whole bunch. I won't say them all. Eight millimeters. So uh, since all matter acts as a wave, it's um, you only know if you know the this the speed of that matter the this is a heisenberg uncertainty principle its position is not known precisely but you you just know statistically or the like the kind of the odds of where it's going to be to within in this case 0. 0.000 lot 8 millimeters for a baseball and so yeah, that's kind of weird to wrap your head around, though, that everything has that, that Heisenberg uncertainty principle and, and everything acting as a wave applies to even like you and me. Is Yeah, you can basically pick if you want to know how fast or the momentum. Those aren't entirely one and the same, but for simplicity's sake, you can pick how fast something is going if you want to know how fast it's going or where something is. And um, on a large scale, that's very simple. Like you can know where something is and know how fast it's going. But once you get down to quantum physics, you really are only allowed in some sense by some law to know exactly where something is or its momentum. And you can't know both at the same time. Yeah, we had a kind of interesting segue there between uh, wave particle duality and the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Um, I mean, that essentially is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You can know where it is or where it's going, one or the other, not both. Um, but yeah, does that is that related to the wave particle duality directly? Could you elaborate on that or is that a whole separate principle? Um, to some degree, it's if you don't know where something is, it's exhibiting some sort of wave characteristic that you don't know. Like, you know, it's in some certain area. You might know that it's contained in a certain area, but you don't know exactly where it is. And you can pinpoint exactly where it is if you want to um, sacrifice all your certainty about its momentum or velocity. Velocity. Okay. I'm so, so that I'm sorry. That is uh, Tim's baseball example. 
where mm -hmm. I can know precisely its velocity, but I have some measurement error or, or tolerance, rather, uncertainty in its position down to that point zero 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 something eight millimeters. Thank but, you. And, and do I do I have it right, guys, that the, the uncertainty is due to the fact that the baseball has that wave like property, right? Is that um, a good way you could think about it is once you so when you observe certain events, then it changes the um, by observing it, you change the nature of what's happening. So a baseball you could catch and you could measure how fast it was going based off of its momentum. But what, and you know exactly where it is now because you caught it, but now it's no longer moving. So you don't know how fast it could be going in the next second, if that makes sense. You, you've, changed it, uh, you've changed its momentum in order to determine its position. Yep. Okay. This is why, um, you know, one of the great quantum physics axioms of, of modern time was spoken by Obi-Wan Kenobi when he said, your eyes can deceive you, Luke. Don't trust them. And it turns <laughs> out that the only way to actually know all of the characteristics of everything is to reach out to it through the force, which I assume is one of the four fundamental forces. I didn't know why I didn't mention that earlier. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the strong force is probably also known as the, the, uh, the light side of the force, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're a Jedi Knight, it is then impossible to know both velocity and position precisely of any object in the universe because they all, to some degree or other, exhibit that wave-particle duality and the uncertainties and limitations that come with it. Now, that said, the uh, the degree to which we can measure where something is, is in, I mean, uh, we're talking infinitesimal little uh, uncertainty as far as like where the, where the where Mars. So if we shot a uh, a manned spacecraft at Mars, we have to be pretty darn certain about where it's going to be. Um, so the the amount of uncertainty that we have as to where Mars will be, even you know a year from now, is you know point zero to the tenth you know um, one uh, well, of uncertainty, says right? Yeah, and it's as Peter was saying, this really comes into play when you get to less massive objects and when you get down to the fundamental objects, which have the minimum mass of any object in the universe, then, then yeah, this becomes much more of a thing. Turns out Mars actually has an appreciably larger amount of mass than a, you know, boson does. Um, <laughs> and so your measurement error is, is appreciably less. But if you, still if will you guys be want to fact check us on that, you could probably <laughs> Google search and double check that. But that will yeah. be one of our first um, our first T-shirts. Is learn from a layman T-shirts is Mars is bigger than a boson. So yeah. <laughs> a pretty interesting. Thing I like that. that. Um, I like principle. that we just totally glossed over how we can all be supervillains by blowing people up with um, basically frequencies. Also. Ooh. I think That's we were saving that for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> another yeah. interesting thing with the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, the reason I hesitated to say momentum, and well, hesitated to say velocity, is um, momentum is different and is um, always conserved, even on quantum scales. So um, this is not usually a problem differentiating between velocity and momentum because you can just add the map or multiply the mass to your velocity and get your momentum. But once you start going at certain speeds, your mass actually can change as well. So um, this may be something for a different podcast on relativity if you haven't talked about that, but um, only lightly a lot touched of weird on it. things that yeah, we have happen. not we have not effectively or accurately discussed relativity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll that'll be for another podcast, Peter. But you can probably come on and help Matt because Matt's. We had a uh, a slight aside here that we had a podcast a while back about um, the laws of thermodynamics, which I'm sure Peter would also help with that. Matt was on, um, and, but at one point Matt had to step away, and Cameron, Tim, uh, Johnny, who's the doctor that's visited us on this podcast before, and I took it for a while off into tangents and. Um, a bit of fake news here and there, you know, some questionable um, assumptions, but uh, 
it uh, turns out, learn it from a layman, you, you get what you get. And um, unless you're hearing it from Peter or Matt, you um, kind of <laughs> just assume I, that... I would say that by and large, we are pretty good with our facts. Um, that is true. Yes. I've got we, it in we a tried number it. of peer-reviewed sources that Mars is indeed larger than most subatomic. <laughs> <laughs> I would love right. to see that paper. All right, let's get back into actual. Uh, okay, back into the back into the actual stuff. meat of this stuff. Um, the, so we were talking about particle wave duality. Um, one thing, and I don't know how directly this plays. I know that there is crossover here. Uh, so uh, a quantum experiment that I think a lot of people are familiar with, a lot of YouTube videos about it, is the double slit experiment. Um, Peter, could you tell us a little bit about that experiment and and what that means, quantum, uh, quantum mechanic wise? Yeah, this is one of the um, one of the ways that we know that everything has a wave and particle um, essence to it is the double slit experiment, but specifically light waves. We weren't sure. There was a large discussion about whether light was a particle, which we now call the photon, or whether it was just a wavelength of um, nothingness that, or a wavelength of electromagnetism. But we, the double slit is what proved that it was both. And so you can, so you can measure the discrete um, photons through a detector, but which is a, um, which is evidence that it is a particle. However, the double slit is the one that proved that it was also a wave. So I don't know. Carl, you're in California. You have waves there, but <laughs> we do. Most people who are on the coast may know of bays when you have like the one little entry into the bay and all the rest is walled off. Yep. When a wave comes into that, it goes through that little slit in the um, in the wall. What do you call those? A, uh, uh, my terminology for beach uh, stuff is limited. Let's call it like a, a wave break, maybe. Or... Yeah, to some degree. But often there's like a entryway into the bay, and when a wave that's a flat line hits that, um, hits the entryway, it actually turns into a semicircle as it progresses forward because it slows down the two ends of it as it enters, and then the center part continues on in the direction that it was going. So when you pass light through a double slit, you have two of them, and those waves will interact, and you can see it. A, uh, interaction on a screen far away that you wouldn't have expected if they were just particles. Okay. And and, and measuring not super clear. No, no, that was good. I, the, part of the the kind of I guess the spook for the layman the spooky aspect of the dual the um the double slit experiment if I'm thinking of the right one here is that measuring it actually also changes it right like the um, if you're, am I thinking of the right um, experiment here? There, there's an experiment in quantum physics that I'm very cursorily familiar with, where where measuring the the, the particle determines whether or not the what you um, what the what's ending up on the on the surface, whatever the the the, ca the surface catching these particles. Essentially, if you measure it, it it'll end up. Um, going through one slit or, or ends up looking like a particle, whereas if you don't, it ends up looking like a wave. Is that is that the double slit experiment? Am I thinking of the right thing here? I think you're thinking of a different one. The double, oh. I mean, that's all of quantum physics is that you, if you measure something, you change the outcome. But the okay. double slit experiment specifically, specifically. is pretty macroscopic. It's large scale. So. Okay, okay. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit then about, so superposition, is that superposition? Maybe that's how you say it. Um, yeah. And as that's, could you tell us what that means exactly? This is one that I'm a little hazy on once you get into the quantum scale, but on a macroscopic scale, superposition is the idea that um, you add or subtract waves together. So if you have, for example, two ocean waves that run into each other, one being reflected off of something and the other one going towards it, then when they touch each other, they add to each other. So that wave will become taller. Or if they are, if one is a trough and one is a wave, then they will cancel each other out and disappear for a moment as they pass through each other. But in quantum mechanics, 
I believe it refers to the um, certainty of where a particle is. If you have two different sources telling you that it's in a certain position, then I believe it means that it is more likely to be in that position. Um, what? Not, yeah. what? No, that's good. That's good. Matt, if, Matt, if you have anything to chime in with this as well here, um, but uh, once again, I go to the, the kind of the the level of what the layman might um, have familiar familiarity with um, and, and, and try to relate principles to that. Um, another thing I, the layman is very familiar with, something that's made it through into popular culture, is Schrodinger's cat. I don't know how much this actually has to do with superposition or whether it has more to do with uh, just g generally the, the measuring of, uh, of something at the quantum level changes its nature, what, what we were talking about earlier. But could you could someone tell me what exactly quant uh, Schrodinger's cat example was meant to, to illustrate? Well, are you okay with losing your PETA-based listener base? <laughs> uh, yes, for now. <laughs> Good answer. Uh, Peter, you want to take this one? Sure. Go for it. Um, Schrodinger's cat was a thought experiment proposed by um, Schrodinger, who is a physicist. And he was, honestly, it wasn't meant to be a serious thought experiment. It was meant to show how foolish it is to talk about these things on a macroscopic level rather than a um, quantum level. But he proposed it and people took it more seriously than might have been, might than he might have wanted. But the idea is in his thought experiment was that there is a large box that is, that has a cat inside of it. And there's also a Geiger counter and a um, bottle of acid and there's a radioactive element within the box as well and with radioactive elements you never know when it's going to decay you can tell in broad strokes like how often it'll decay with a ton of different decays and a ton of different particles but if you just have a single isotope you never know for certain exactly when it will happen so in this thought experiment the um, isotope is placed in the box with the cat, and if the isotope decays, then the Geiger counter will pick up that decay and break the bottle of acid and destroy the cat. And if it doesn't decay, then the cat is still alive. So he proposed trying to show how foolish it is to talk about these things in a macroscopic scale that if you don't open the box, you don't know if the cat is alive or dead. So the cat is both alive and dead, which doesn't make sense in our brains. Right. Because right. it hasn't been observed, right? That's... Yep. Yeah. So until so that... you open it, you don't know. And so and, and the kind of the, the thought experiment was saying that it is it is both right in the quantum and the quantum realm the cat is both alive and dead essentially it's, it's kind of this non-existence like the, the state in between states <laughs> yeah it's kind of saying like on a quantum scale for example you might have you have uncertainty of where an electron is in the electron cloud of the atom and um, and on a quantum scale the electron is in every position within that cloud that you can create using um, certain models but um because we don't know where it is, it is in every position within that cloud, and we're just not certain as to um, exactly where it is at any given point. But on a large scale, saying that the cat is in every position or that the cat is both alive and dead doesn't make sense. So Heisenberg was trying to prove that point by making a foolish example, in his opinion. Right. And like you said, it's kind of been taken and actually run with right and it's in the physics circles it is actually yeah. uh, kind of viewed uh, as as proof that that, that is a, that is uh, actually confirms um some of the models that the, and the quantum um laws that they, that, that he was discussing yeah i, I mean, don't know on that a macroscopic scale, a scale it's basically it's not correct on a macroscopic scale however on a right. quantum scale it would be right 
this actually also relates to, I was reading, a, a, once again, uh, in preparation for the podcast, I was reading an article about how um, the, at the quantum level, they're, they're saying that, every, and once again, this is going, coming from a layman, this might not make a lot of sense as far as the math of it, but they're saying that at every point where a decision is made, where something is observed, right, you said it changes its nature, but uh, they're saying there's some quantum law or some quantum theory that, that postulates that at any point um, that, that where there, a decision is made to be a wave or a particle or whatever, uh, and, and at the macroscopic level of I can make a decision this way or that way, um, both exist. And, and so essentially it spawns a new universe around that decision, around a wave or a particle or around a decision of left or right. And so that there are these infinite universes where, you know, you did actually turn left when you meant to turn right. Uh, and and that that universe exists, and the the universe that we're currently experiencing is just the you know just w one walk down this this infinite path of of potential um, choices of, of of from subatomic all the way up to macroscopic level. Um, and so, I once again I, I feel like that probably falls into what you're talking about, Peter, about where at the at the quantum level that probably makes some sense. There's some quantum laws that that probably do kind of follow but at the macroscopic level it cites not making any sense is that something you've heard about before i have heard people use schrodinger's cat as a um, basis for the multiple universe theory um i think that you could probably find proponents for both sides of that but i think that the vast majority don't the vast majority of physicists and scientists wouldn't look at schrodinger's cat as a believable basis for well, and um, i think some of this universes. i think some of this comes back to what you were saying about schrodinger was intending this to be a bit of an absurdist example mm -hmm. and showing how that while the quantum realm may obey one set of rules the macro realm the one that we uh you know experience more intimately day to day does not conform to that he's, he's not saying that I, I don't know i looked at it as less of a schrodinger was trying to say that the cat is both alive and dead no schrodinger was showing that that is an absurdly idiotic notion but until you <laughs> yep, observe exactly. the stupid cat you don't know if it's alive or dead it is one or the other it very much is you just have to observe it mm -hmm. good and so yeah, yeah the universe you know, there, when you get down to the quantum realm, weird stuff happens. Things go one way or another. You have to observe them to figure out what actually happened. And until you, and when you observe it, you are changing it at that level. Uh, it, it is different. Um, but yeah, the yeah. macro universe, uh, it's, it's just chugging along. <laughs> and uh, yeah, exactly. until you go into the realm of comic books... Uh, I think we just got the one here. Right, exactly. And, and one, yeah, one of the art, one of the physicists quoted in the article that I was reading about this multiple universe theory was essentially saying, look, that's it. even if it were true, it, it it says nothing. Like it's it. There's no. It doesn't take you anywhere uh, as far as like teaching or com furthering a, a physics or a, or a law yeah, or providing it literally useful it's, knowledge. It's, yeah, it, it's not it's not useful. And so it said, even if it's true, why would we talk about it? like it doesn't help us? So anyway, um, let's talk about one other thing here but while we, uh, before we wrap up the podcast here, and that's quantum entanglement. Um, this is one again, uh, one of those things. Just one more minor <laughs> topic. For exactly. Just for something we can touch on a couple of minutes here and, and completely understand. Uh, but I believe this is kind of probably specifically what Einstein was talking about when he talked about spooky action at a distance. At least that's my understanding. Um, can, can Peter, will you tell us what quantum entanglement is? Oh, can I just make one comment oh, okay. with the last uh, content really fast? So sure. if I'm understanding this correctly, in the proverbial woods in the quantum realm, the tree is both fallen and stand up and made a sound and didn't make a sound. And yep, nobody heard exactly it and somebody right. heard it. <laughs> yes. So if, I, if I'm thinking that correctly. Yep. Yep. Infinite universes. Okay. If, if the tree was small enough. Uh, did it make it? What? 
No, I just thought yeah, it again, it only applies at micro levels. So oh, got it. Box, box box trees, so we that, should just all start good. watching that Marvel one, The Wasp, because he has to go into the quantum realm. Right? There, there you go. Another documentary on how the <laughs> No, you, you only get this happening with trees when you deal with bonsai plants. Otherwise... <laughs> boson plants? Is that what you said? <laughs> yeah, boson plants. Yes. Boson and, and to, to be clear, right. that, that tree does have that quantum movement or whatever you want to call it, but it, it's so tiny that it makes no difference to our observation. It's, you know... Yeah, once again, breakdown uh, when you're talking macroscopic. So one thing I wanted to add, uh, here at Learn It From a Layman, we sometimes get accused of providing information that isn't necessarily useful to you. Um, but we're, you know, and you, you look at quantum physics and you, you think, well, how can this benefit me day to day? Um, and so we're going to give you that. And we're specifically talking to our criminal audience right now. Uh, because what we've done is given you your get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, when you are arrested for robbing a bank, and when you are on trial, you need to make sure that your judge is familiar with quantum physics, uh, specifically this podcast. And what we have done is handed you your defense. Basically, if they show you the surveillance video of you robbing the bank, if the eyewitnesses come up and say, I saw that person do it, you now have the bulletproof rebuttal of the fact that they observed me means that uh, I, I wasn't there. My position was altered. That the fact of me being observed means that uh, you, you can't accurately determine the rest of my action. And the judge, now being familiar with quantum physics, will go, yes, that is actually true. Case dismissed. And you're good to go. Okay. So, uh, so if that fails you, which it will, uh, another another interesting fact of quantum uh, theory that could help you out is once you're in prison, there's a thing called a quantum tunnel. And if you bash yourself against a wall for like, well, a large number of years, like significantly higher than a, a exponent, exponent of what you are going to live. But if you bash yourself against a, will, a wall for that long, eventually your uh, atoms and all of the all of your matter will align with the wall and you'll pass through the wall without being hurt. So there Another you problem. Don't say we never did anything for you. That's right. <laughs> now, just, just a heads up, our prison population might have a problem if you have a judge who's too aware of quantum physics where he'll, he'll determine that because of the uncertainty principle, he doesn't know whether you've actually been serving your sentence or not. All right. So now that we're done with these innate uh, asides. <laughs> okay, or you just claimed that you were pulled from a parallel reality and you didn't actually do it. Exactly. I smell another documentary. Yeah, explain that you're innocent in all the other universes and therefore this universe is you shouldn't be punished because the majority of the time you didn't rob the bank. <laughs> okay. Let's test this theory. All right. Uh, quantum entanglement, though. So, uh, Peter, you're going to explain what quantum entanglement means? My understanding of quantum entanglement is pretty limited. Um, I can give one example of something that is interesting, but it's basically sure. that things might interact that we don't specifically understand, and the information travels faster than it should be able to. The speed limit of the universe is the speed of light, and... There are certain particles that are linked to each other in some way that I don't understand, and I don't believe there's a lot of understanding yet on how they do interact, but there's a particle called a buckyball that you can split into two, and you can take them to vastly different locations. You could have one here and one on Pluto, and if you were to spin one, the other one would spin at the exact same instant without the delay of the time it would take for light to go between the, the two. So there is some, well, there's a lot of potential for this kind of knowledge to make a huge difference in space travel because currently messages take forever to get between these two different locations. And it's hard to control, for example, a probe on the surface of Mars if you have to wait for like five minutes for it to actually react to the 
instructions you gave it. But if you could give instantaneous instructions, then it would make a huge difference in space travel and transferring information. Yeah, that is really interesting because you can imagine how you could use that to encode uh, a, if you can do it predictably, if we can get a bunch of buckyballs, is that what you said? Is that the type yeah. of particle it was? Yeah, you have to isolate them and it takes a ton of energy to do so. So currently okay. it's not feasible on a large scale, but if Got you it. could, it would be interesting. Yeah, yeah, that is really interesting. Yeah, so uh, one of those, yeah, just uh, currently, once again, Peter would know better than I would, but as far as able to, I was able to ascertain not well understood aspects of quantum physics is uh, the how how these two particles are related, but the that that they are has been proven, right? So, yeah, there's a lot of particles that like have some sort of entanglement, but we just I think that that field is very unexplored at this point. It sounds like a good uh, premise for a James Bond documentary. <laughs> uh, just so, so you know, Peter, apparently the, the minutes to know if our action on Mars actually happened. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure exactly uh, yes. how long. I'd have to it, look up it the. Takes a while. I'm just saying, if, if it takes like five minutes to send the signal, then it's going to take another five minutes to send the signal back to make sure you did it right. I'm just saying, like ten minutes before you actually know if something happened. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it's a challenge. That yeah. actually seems really frustrating. Yeah, well, okay, so uh, bringing things to the practical level, for all of you laymen out there who are thinking about satellite internet services, there's two types of satellite internet services. There are satellites in low Earth orbit that will provide you internet, like SpaceX's little Starlink cloud. And then there are satellites in geosynchronous orbit, uh, like HughesNet, that will provide you internet service as well. The internet service in geosynchronous orbit is at an altitude of about 26,000 miles. And it takes about a half second for light to go from the Earth and out there and then come back. Uh, what does this mean for you? It means that if you have satellite internet and you want to stream a movie or update Facebook or browse the web, that's fine. You can do that with either service. But if you want to do an online video game and you're dealing with geosynchronous satellite internet, you're going to have a half second of lag, at least, between your actions and what happens on your screen, and you will lose every single game. Um, you can get away with it at low Earth orbit because the, the light travels uh, a much shorter distance and gets back down to the ground much quicker. Uh, negligible lag. But, you know, that's something to that can the speed of light can come back and bite you if you're unaware of what Internet service you're buying and what you're going to be using it for. Don't play video games on satellite Internet if it's running off a satellite in geo. There you go. And also, if anyone is marketing quantum, quantum if anyone is marketing quantum Internet to you at this point, according to what I just learned from uh, Peter, they're lying. They don't they can't do that. Um, I just looked up the yeah, delay to Mars and it's 20 minutes. Yeah, 20 minutes. Uh, yeah. It doesn't surprise me at all. It's a pain. Now, it has yeah. very little to do with quantum physics, actually, but it's you know something. Yeah, it's interesting, light. and and it does yeah uh, give uh, underscore the fact that this idea that yeah you can take these particles that this that are quantum entangled arbitrarily dis arbitrary distances apart and have them. Um, spin at the same time, the same direction. Is, it's mind blowing. Um, yeah. So uh, that is, I think, a good place to end. I like blowing minds and then ending the podcast. So um, I'd like to thank Peter, Peter Vogel. I don't, um, I don't know if I introduced our relationship to start off the podcast. And now at the end of the podcast, Peter, I don't know if you want to claim relationship, but. Um, <laughs> I appreciate Peter, who is a family relation, uh, coming on and uh, helping us with this podcast. And uh, obviously, as always, Matt, uh, Tim and Cameron. And uh, if you have any other quantum questions or physics questions, things you want us to touch on in the, f in the future, let us know. Um, you know. Make some comments on our podcast. Uh, send us an email. And uh, otherwise, we'll be back again and next podcast. only ask Matt or Peter, because we don't know. <laughs> You can ask Cameron, mm -hmm. Tim, or I, but it's kind of like rolling a dice. Um, 
as to whether or not our question is even going to be uh, the answer is going to be even coherent, much less well, correct. We may need to take this thing back into some more traditional lay topics. So with that, <laughs> hey, uh, Peter, what is Seth doing next week? Um, oh, there we go. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't believe he's that busy, surprisingly, Excellent. for someone right. being in med school. Neuroscience <laughs> it is then. Yeah, so we've got we've got lots of family relations that w- that are incredibly intelligent that we can tap into here. Um, so we'll uh, we'll we'll make sure that we get lots of uh, non-lay subjects co- covered by laymen in the near future. So join us again for next podcast. Until then, we will see you later.